Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Rebecca Morris. She's among the 27 artists included in Made in LA 2016, A, The, Though, Only, the Hammer Museum's biennial. The exhibition, which was curated by Aram Moshayeti and Hamza Walker, is on view through August 28th. Morris is a Los Angeles-based abstract painter. Her solo exhibition credits include Laxart in Los Angeles, a survey of paintings she made between 1996 and 2005 at Chicago's Renaissance Society, and an exhibition at Germany's Kunsthalle Lingen that traveled to the Bonifanten in Maastricht. On the second segment, we'll turn back the clock to four years ago when Los Angeles-based artist Roy Dowell was included in the 2012 iteration of Made in L.A. But first, Rebecca Morris, after the break. Join J. Paul Getty Trust President Jim Cuno in a new podcast, Art and Ideas. In the debut episodes, discover the history of porcelain with potter and author Edmund DeWall. Explore the depth of visual intelligence with art historian Yves Alambois on Ellsworth Kelly. Delve into the formative years of Los Angeles-based architect Frank Gehry. Unearth the ancient past with archaeologist Colin Renfrew. And examine the history of Black Mountain College with curator Helen Molesworth. Available on getty.edu slash podcasts or search for it in your favorite podcast player. After a major three-year expansion, the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art returns as the largest art museum in the U.S. dedicated to modern and contemporary art. New exhibitions include works from the Doris and Donald Fisher collection, with dedicated galleries spanning the careers of Andy Warhol, Alexander Calder, Agnes Martin, Chuck Close, Gerhard Richter, and many more. Experience the new SF MoMA, where kids 18 and under always get in free. To book tickets and for more information, visit sfmoma.org. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Made in L.A. 2016, a, the, though, only, the third biennial of artists working throughout Los Angeles. Organized by Hammer curator Aram Moshayeti and the Renaissance Society's Hamza Walker, Made in L.A. 2016 features the work of 26 artists. Occupying the entire Hammer Museum, the exhibition includes condensed monographic surveys, comprehensive displays of multi-year projects, the premiere of new bodies of work and newly commissioned works from emerging artists. Find details at hammer.ucla.edu. Made in LA 2016, a, the, though, only. On view June 12th through August 28th at the Hammer Museum. And we're back. Rebecca Morris, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, thank you for inviting me. Let's start with in, in kind of an odd place with the 10 pages devoted to you in the Made in LA catalog. I understand you had input into what went into those 10 pages. Could you describe what you chose to do with them? Yeah, my 10 pages are close-ups of paintings. And I decided to do this. They had said, you know, Aram and Hamza had... The two curators of the show? Yeah. Mm -hmm. They had said, we're doing the catalog and we're giving everybody free reign. So you can do whatever you want. If you want someone to write about your work, you want to, if you want to write about your work, you want to do an interview, you want to do images, whatever you want. And I think right away, I just had this idea to just do these details because I knew the scale of the book. And one thing that happens with my work, especially as it's gotten larger and larger, is that anytime it's reproduced, the image is thus smaller and smaller. And when the paintings are reproduced, they 
they look tighter and I, you really lose the surface quality of the paint, which is very, very important in the works. And, and I wanted that to be communicated, the often thin, washy, uh, almost scrubby look to the surface and with details that can immediately be captured and that they're not really as sharp or graphic as they might appear in a picture that shows the whole piece. You know, a 10-foot painting on an 8.5 by 11 piece of paper or image is just so hardened down to something that I think starts communicating much less about what a physical experience with a painting in front of a painting is. So the details seem to be a way to do that. And then I, I just thought, well, I want to try to have as many of the actual paintings that will be in the show in the book. But because of the book deadline coming out right when the show did, that wasn't really going to be possible. But doing details meant that we could photograph parts of the painting in progress, and it wouldn't really sacrifice the image. And you know, parts of the painting might be more further along than others, so we could take details of those areas. So it enabled me to really show work in the catalog that was, in a sense, what was in the show. I mean, if, if, if that ended up not being the case entirely, but for the most part it is, and, and that was important to me. I don't want to suggest that on each of the 10 pages there is a different mark-making strategy or a different way of making a mark, but over the course of the 10 pages, there are many different ways you apply paint and change paint and put it on canvas. Was showing that range part of the idea or particularly important? I think so. And I think it was probably a way to make the pages have a flow too. I What we did was we photographed a lot. And I think the designers then came back to me with sequencing and then I reworked the sequencing a little, thinking about what you just mentioned, you know, having a flow between different types of painting moments within the pieces. And, you know, that's how the paintings look. I mean, the paintings do have lots of differing moments within a single piece. So that's just, a, a, just another way to try to honestly communicate what's happening in the painting. You mentioned a moment ago the importance of kind of being able to zoom in, whereas when the paintings are reproduced, you know, at a fraction of their actual, you know, a very small fraction of their actual size, you kind of lose touch, visual touch with, with mark making and surface. And one of the things that the details show off is that you often make work with super thinned out paint. You get closer to the look and feel of magna paint. And magna, of course, has a feel because the surface canvas or duck is, is often or even usually visible. You get that feel without using magna and, of course, without the attendant side effects. Are you interested in any of that or am I reading in? That the painting's made with magna paint in that, that period of time? Do you thin paint out in an effort to to get visual tactility, to get get a different surface? Yeah, I first off, I love working against the white of the ground. You know, the thin paint is really relies upon the white gessoed surface. I think the way that I arrived at the thinness of the paint was probably a little more gradual and organic. I have for years and years and years made works on paper that I call drawings, but in essence, they're watercolors. And by 
making, you know, hundreds and hundreds of these watercolors, the, the tendency, the quickness, the improvisation, the directness that working with a brush on paper has that's a little different than oil on canvas, I think over time had an effect on the paintings. And one of those was that the paint started mimicking watercolor more and more and more, the splashiness of it, the way I can erase it quickly and wipe it out or wipe through it or add on top or do things wet on wet or do a thin surface. And then when that's dry, you make a mark on top and that has a much sharper look. And so you can get different, you know, senses of space, all of that flexibility. I've just loved. And I did used to make very opaque, heavy, globby paintings. So I would say, you know, I'm trying to figure out like when the real, the thinness started. And another way I used to make paintings would I would start with a very thin ground and then the globby stuff would be built on top and take months to accrue, but you would always have a little bit of that thin starting point. So now I feel like the paintings are primarily just that thin starting point or it's there are some pieces that have thicker denser more spray painted areas that are a direct counter to the thin areas almost making the thin areas look more thin in comparison but yeah no and it's it's a sort of a staining effect that i think is just really beautiful and i've also thought about it just i've lived in la now for I guess this fall, I will have lived here for 18 years. And I I do think that there's this bleaching quality to the sun here all the time that sort of blasts everything. (laughs) So, you know, like when you hit bright sun, you're sort of blinded and everything's sort of faint and a fuzz of color. And it's possible that there's something in that in the work. I wouldn't say it's about that, but I think maybe the effect of working here for such a chunk of time, that's another aspect to why it might be the way it is. I don't want to go too far down the the 1960s or Washington Color School magna painting road because your paintings look nothing like that. But was there a surface or is there a surface in those paintings that you found interesting or instructive? I mean, I love those paintings. Uh, I think they're incredible. I may have, I may respond. I mean, I like the surface, but if if without, uh, if you would ask me the question, what do you like about that work? What appeals to you most first? I would have said color, not the the surface quality. There's something about the color and there were there have been a series of Kenneth Nolan paintings that have been exhibited in the last three years in various group shows. There was a group show in LA at Honor Fraser and then I believe there was a couple group shows in New York. And I just keep being pulled over by his color, like these strange pinks and greens and very surprising combinations. And just the way that there's a field and then a sharp edge or interruption. He tried to get it as sharp as he could, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I find those really, really uh, beautiful. I've always loved Morris Lewis's paintings, partly for the myth of how the hell did he make them. You know, the big mystery of he had a tiny, tiny studio that was like a walk-in closet. It was, or a di- it was the dining room in the front of his house on Legation Street yeah. in Washington, yeah. Yeah, 
there. I'm glad you know all the. And he dried them. He yeah, dried them on his front porch, basically on his front steps, while his while his wife, who supported the family, was away teaching school all day. Yeah, and so she had no idea how he made them. I think Sharon Lockhart did a piece at MIT where she tried to recreate the idea of how maybe he was making them, and and there's a video of it. I don't know if you've seen it, and it's, or if it's not a video, it's still photography of this combination of using sawhorses to create these alleyways and canals of pushing the canvas together and then creating like a spill section. Anyway, that's that's something that when I think of Morris Lewis, I get as interested in the background as the pieces themselves, but they're incredible. And those veils and the way the, in his paintings, the way the veils build color through luminosity and overlap, you know, the ones where you can just see on the edge, you can see all the pure bright jewel tones, but then the bulk of the color of the canvas is just this schmurgy brown gray, which is a gorgeous color, but it's just so beautiful to see how pure color built it. And it's all very, very thin. So yeah, no, I love that. I love that. It's really miraculous and and just exciting. I think all of those paintings still have such a a very present feeling of discovery in them. Again, I don't want I don't want to dwell on the on the thing, but but your paintings are full of brushiness that are not in those paintings. I mean, there are lots of points of difference, but I, I the thinness of the paint, which is so interesting in your surfaces, is is within those. Speaking of of the paint, the details in the catalog are actually a really effective way of encouraging viewers to focus on. Uh, on your palette, on the color you use, which is pretty distinct. Back in 2012, you did a conversation with the website In The Make. It's a super website uh, of conversations with artists. It's run by, and I hope I'm getting names right here, Clea McKenna, Nikki Gratton, and Dana Lehman. Lehman? Yeah. And we'll have a link to their site on, on manpodcast.com. The, the picture at the top of the interview you did with them shows four kinds of color boards, kind of swatch boards, if you will. And, that, and those boards are leaning on a, on a table in your studio that's covered with your paints and your mixing bowls. And I wondered what those color boards do for you. Well, you know, it's funny about those color boards. I, I don't really make them anymore. And I may have sort of not really been making them as much even then, but they're really cool. I love the way they sort of look. They were not meant to be pieces in and of themselves. They were really just useful, but the way the colors get added to the board, I think was, I I sort of thought they were sort of funny. The first one I did was all these different browns. And in fact, when I had my exhibition at the Renaissance Society in 2005. In Chicago. Yeah, we used that uh, brown color board as the poster for the show. So that was really great because that was, I think the poster was even bigger than the 18 by 24, or at least the same size as the poster for the show. So it was a real one-to-one. And that color board, what I was doing was that I was buying all different brands of brown. But all, you know, when you buy brands like, let's say, Old Holland or Blocks or Gamblin, they'll have the same brown, like Van Dyke brown. But if you buy the three different brands, the Van Dyke browns are dramatically different from each other. (laughs) So the color chart was a way for me to really be, and because brown is such a dark color, 
you know, you, you look at it with the cap off and you just can't really see it. So that's what I did. I made this color chart so I could really chart out all the colors that I had within a tight range so I could be like, oh, well, that I want that raw umber as opposed to, you know, the Williamsburg raw umber, not the uh, Old Holland raw umber right now. Or And then later, the color board started developing into when I would make a color, mix a color that I really thought was interesting and I wanted to remember how I did it. Just not that I can't mix it again by looking at it, but when you're mixing color as much as I am, it does help to kind of just maybe quickly do a brush stroke and then say what's in it just so I can get back there faster. Um, so that's, it evolved into that. So that's the note taking on those boards. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I would do that in a notebook, but you can't do that with oil paint in a notebook. So these boards were perfect. And, and so in the, in the more recent ones, there are, you know, it says how I made, you know, it'd be like the start, the first color, and then I'll say plus, 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 and it's not very scientific, but it, it's close enough. And it just helps me remember things that I do in the moment. So on those color boards or even in your paintings now, do you care if colors go together or, quote, belong together in a traditional sense? Sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. I mean, sometimes it's about trying to make things that go together and sometimes it's about trying to make them not go together. Could I ask for examples? Yeah. So, I mean, things that go together, in my mind, black, red, and white, you know, they go together. They're, you make a black, white, and red painting, and I feel like there's a 40% chance it's going to be good. There's, so there's a painting at 356 that has one of your big black lobster claws. We'll get to lobster claws in a minute. But it's a, it's a form, it's a shape that looks like a lobster claw. It's kind of black and silver, and it's in the middle of the painting, and it's surrounded by mostly, but not entirely, red forms. I'm guessing that's an example. Yes, that is an example of that. And, you know, I feel like that's a very classical painting in terms of the color. Red, blue, green, a lot of primary and secondary colors. They're all very mixed. I, I very rarely use any paint right out of the tube. Everything is slightly customized, not in a way that anybody notices per se. It's, it's not about noticing. It's about the effect of everything working together, which is, you know, what I'm thinking about. But an example of going back to your question of things that might not go together. So in looking at the lobster claw painting at the hammer, which is pink primarily, or this mauve color, the painting has a, a splatter border, which I think is actually red, white, and black. And then right below it, there's an area of space that runs just across the whole painting, and it's a, a dark mauve. It's a kind of gross, like, like a rotting rose color. So that color right next to what's underneath it, which is this very coral bleh of stuff, that those two colors together are tough. And, you know, I would say the painting is about those two colors being tough together as much as it is anything else. So that would be an example of something tough. Or, you know, a lot of coral colors right now that are very grayed out and sort of dirty. And I would actually, when I'm thinking about it in the studio, I'm not just thinking dirty, I'm thinking filthy. <laughs> so 
so there's it's a very I have very strong feelings about these colors and and how they get juxtaposed because they're in and of themselves they can go any direction it's really how you use relational color so that particular painting has some kind of fingers of yellow on either side of the painting that function as fingers pointing at at the visual discomfort in the middle and at the very bottom of the painting at the very bottom right there's kind of a bluish lobster claw that suggests, look, I could have done this. It made things go together, but yeah, 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 yeah. No. But I did make sure. I, I, it, I, a very big decision in the painting was, I have this horizontal band at the very bottom of the picture plane and a horizontal band at the top of the picture plane. Was I going to have those be the same? And that was a big decision because the effect of having them be the same is very different than not having them be the same. What, what, then I did choose to do it the same. So Except for the length. I, the I, length is different. The length is different. And if you look carefully, the, the, width the is, way it's yeah. painted on the bottom feels bigger and the one at the top feels smaller. So that I think helps with a feeling of space, maybe implying that the bottom of the painting is coming closer to the viewer. And as you look up, there's almost like a sense of three-point perspective, which would mean that something's getting smaller and diminishing. It's a very demon corny and ocean park-like decision. <laughs> I mean, you know, one of, one of the rules that seems to run through ocean park is that with one or two exceptions in the entire series, demon corn doesn't allow himself verticals that run up and down the entire painting or horizontals that run all the way across the entire painting. And so it, it feels like at the very top or very bottom of an Ocean Park painting with an O'Keeffe uh, Manhattan running up the left side because it looks like a building. That figure on the left looks like a building out of one of the Manhattan paintings from 2930. 1929, 1930. I love that painting. That's a totally great painting. You know what's funny is that there was some chatter online about that painting that I caught wind of, and I... I didn't know this, but there's some cartoon character named Hey Arnold, and apparently his hair has this, like, yellow weird thing. And I think uh, some people, you know, who came to the painting might have thought the whole painting was about Hey Arnold in some way, which I think is really hilarious. So if you, like, Google Hey Arnold, you'll see what I'm talking about, and it's, it just really makes you laugh out loud. It's so funny. So, this is a good time to talk about the lobster claw. Not my phrase. I believe it is your phrase. What it is, is my phrase. Yeah. So what is a lobster claw? Lobster claw is not really about a lobster or a claw or any of that. And it's certainly not supposed to reference that per se. But I, I started kind of just calling it that because it, it does. The first lobster claw painting really looked like a lobster claw, the shape of it and the color. So... It's a hook shape, and it came out of making drawings. And then I, so there was this first lobster claw painting from 2006. And if when I looked back through my work, tracing its development, there's actually a painting from the Santa Monica Museum in 2003 that is sort of a pre-lobster claw painting. It doesn't have the claw shape yet, but it has so many of the other compositional devices that it's really just right before. And then the 2006 painting is the first lobster claw painting. And I've always loved that piece. And it sold to a collector in London. And I've seen it reproduced 
And then I talk about my work frequently. You know, I'm invited to speak about it at various schools and universities. So I usually talk about that painting because it feels important to me. And I kept revisiting the painting and just thinking like, yeah, it's really important to me. And I think I'm not finished. Not that that painting isn't finished, but there's something, the hook of this painting, literally, I'm still hooked. So I think in a, you know, a couple years ago, I just thought, well, I'm going to just reimagine it. I looked at a painting, I looked at the painting and I did a sketch of a version of it. And then I just stopped looking at the painting and just started drawing and it was exactly as I thought. I had so many ideas and it was so fun to draw within this set of motifs with this hook or this claw and what, it, you know, that it could, it's a diagonal and there's a curve. It is sort of an aggressive shape, but it doesn't have to be because the curve can soften it. And so I did all these drawings of it and then, uh, and I still do drawings from it and that's led to what I think is kind of now developing into a, a series within what I do, which is the lobster claw paintings. The pink one at the hammer actually has a very close relationship to the one we spoke about earlier that was at 356. And when I was working on the 356 painting, the way I work is I work flat on the floor. And so I work on the floor and then the painting needs to go up so I can see it. So it'll go up against the wall. And I think at one point the painting was up against the wall, upside down, the 356 painting. So I saw it upside down and I was like, oh my God. You know, just seeing your work in a different direction can be very important. It it, it really flips it. I mean, it's also an old drawing trick, you know, that, that drawing that Picasso did of Stravinsky. It's like this drawing on the right side of the brain trick where if you want to draw that accurately, you draw it upside down. Anyway, so I see this painting upside down. And I'm like, oh, the thrust of those huge shapes now look like almost like a tsunami and they're flying up and to the right. And so basically I just thought, okay, well, my next lobster claw painting is going to be that. And so that's how the pink one is. And so if you actually look at the 356 painting upside down next to the hammer pink one, it, it, you really see the connection. I, I just gave a lecture on Tuesday, where I actually showed that in the lecture, I made like a little JPEG of painting upside down next to the pink one. So stuff like that happens all the time. But that's, that's how the, so the lobster claws have come out of the drawings and also out of themselves. So being being an historian, I spent hours the other night trying to see if I could find an art historical source for that form. Do you think there's an art historical source for that form? Well, I can't think of one off the top of my head, but I think it would be pretty naive if I said I had invented it. <laughs> um. So the two things I, I was thinking of, and I will confess at the outset, I couldn't find <laughs> either of what I thought I could find, which may say more about my library and my Googling skills than, than what's actually out there. But it's a form that feels very much like mid to late career Frank Stella. And it's a form that I swear is in some Francis Picabia abstract paintings. But I couldn't find those either. <laughs> Do you have thoughts on either of those those painters? Yeah, love both of them. They're really incredible. I mean, like Picabia is just amazing for the breadth of the work and the stylistic changes and how many movements he was a part of within his lifetime. I mean, that's just really incredible. And then Frank Stella, I've always loved. And uh, there are a couple of catalogs. I haven't read them for a long time, but when I did read them, 
I just thought they were great. I'm looking at my bookcase. There's this one at MoMA that uh, it's the Frank Bella book William Rubin wrote, and there's some great essays in there that I remember when I read them maybe in the late 90s. I just it really uh, resonated with me as well as parts of Frank Stella's book Working Space. Something that Frank Stella talked about in Working Space that I really liked was this idea of space in a painting that you have recessive space, projected space, and then the literal surface plane itself. And, you know, I think about that a lot. Like, how do you make something go back? How do you make something look forward? And then how do you articulate the the illusionism, sort of undermine the illusionism on top of while you're trying to create it at the same time? So that's interesting because I, I'm going to try to say this as politely as I can. I feel like a lot of your paintings reference collage in that you put things on canvas but not necessarily in a compositionally determined way, but because they're interesting visual elements to have there together. I've read you talk about collage before, but are you more interested in it as an act or is it an, as an image-building technique? Well, I'm probably interested in it being both, but, it's, but, but I think the act of it is probably what I think about on a daily basis more. I guess that gets us to the grid, which I don't want to spend a ton of time on because you've talked about the grid a lot. But no one is born to a grid. It's the kind of thing painters come to after study, especially thanks to cubism. Do you remember how and in whom and where you began to find that an interesting pictorial structure or support? I can't quite remember where it started, but I, I will say that I wasn't always an abstract painter. I, my undergraduate education was quite classical, and when I applied to graduate school, I didn't get into graduate school right away. I got into a post-baccalaureate program at the Art Institute of Chicago, and so I had this sort of like, it's a real year of graduate school, but you're not fully an MFA candidate, so you paint and paint and paint, and it was during that year that I was shocked into how much I didn't know and understand about painting and that the technical stuff that I did know was actually not that interesting anymore. So I had this, and I wasn't quite sure what my language was. And what I eventually discovered was that I was working within the long, the wrong stylistic language for myself, that that wasn't the efficient way that made me feel like me. I didn't have that, like I'm doing what I should be doing feeling. Uh, so the first part of graduate school was figuring that out and abstraction when I discovered that and then could figure out how to make an abstract painting that's where it just like everything just the doors flew open and I would say that at that point is probably where the grid became very helpful for me in learning how to make an abstract painting or that it was as simple as that so when I think about the grid and what I might have been looking at, you know, Mondrian, of course, Russian constructivism, uh, Robert Ryman, Mary Heileman, maybe even Moira Dreyer in a sort of loose way, certainly Saul LeWitt, which was an is an artist I've always known. Robert Ryman in particular, there was a painting that I saw 
that really moved me, and it still does. I, actually, it's very rare that I can be in the presence of this painting and not cry. It's, it's, it's very strange. It's a painting that's at Dia Beacon, and it's uh, just simply canvas stretched, and it just has a charcoal grid line that wraps on the face of the painting and then around the side. And there's a few of these paintings at Dia Beacon, but one in particular of the smallest. And it's, I don't know what it is. It's just so powerful to me and so simple and perfect. And every time I look at it, I'm reminded, and there's no paint on it, of course, but every time I look at it, I'm just instantly reminded of how fucking hard it is to make a good painting and how this one is of the simplest and most powerful means and it doesn't use paint per se it's very small and yet it is just so powerful to me so i think there's just something about the grid and i and, and yeah i mean i think that's sort of my answer to that question there, there's there's a move you have in regards to the grid that I, I to me is the most interesting thing about your use of the grid. So we were talking earlier about how you you often thin your paints to the point that they just kind of soak into the canvas and and kind of soak in and bleed out a la magna paint. So sometimes when you make a grid, you make a grid that way and allow it to kind of bleed in and spread out. And I mean, all your grids are freehand, but these are particularly organic. And sometimes, as in one of the details in the hammer catalog, you paint the grid on top of the surface rather than letting it soak in to the point where it looks like, and I know you're not doing this, I'm just, this is just a point of visual reference for the listener, almost as if you're squeezing it right out of the tube on, onto the surface and then pressing down a little bit so that it's that kind of raised feeling. What is the difference for you in, in building a painting or in looking at one of your paintings in letting the grid soak in or having it sit on top of? Well, I'll do, I, I have a lot of different paintings where there's things that sit on top of, and it wouldn't just be the grid. So I think I'd tie it more into that visual effect than the grid itself. But, you know, it's a spatial, it's a spatial effect where it feels as if there's maybe a surface, a skin that is just lightly atop of something else. And so it's a way to make an authoritative gesture with the the thicker application on top of something washy. You know, it's just a, a paint. It's just a classic painting trick. It's not even a trick. It's just a device. It's a device. In the catalog, I think you're talking about the one that the painting that's a sort of a white ground with marks on it. And then there's a gold grid on top. Is that the painting you're talking about? Yep. Red marks, red, red kind of splotchy marks and then a gold grid. Yeah. Okay. That that painting was in the three five six show, and it's a it's a very airy painting. The painting was made on the floor as a tarp, and so the way it developed wasn't so much with me making those marks on purpose, but they were the incidental marks from working on other paintings on top of this tarp. And then, of course, sometimes I would do things on purpose to it. But for the most part, it was just this large piece of gessoed canvas that was collecting marks. Then I isolated the part, the, the, the area within it that I thought was the most interesting, I had a stretcher bar made, had that stretched, and then I I did the gold grid on top of it. And the reason I did something like a grid on top of that painting was that the surface of the tarp was so interesting and there were so many 
marks and moments that were small that I didn't want to cover up by overlaying a very open structure on top of it, I could still create a classical forward and backward sense of space without covering up the actual surface of the painting. So it enabled me to kind of just throw a net over it without making it too opaque. And then the gold is, it, it does that thing that I alluded to before when we were talking about Frank Stella, which is the gold is thicker. So it naturally, you read it as coming into the viewer space as in projecting. And then the gold furthers that projection because it's actually, you know, like a little bing or a, a glow. You, you know what I mean? Like, you know how a diamond, you know, in the right light sh- casts a, a little beam of sparkle. So the gold is a way to really just blast something forward off the painting surface. And then the, the that painting has all of these marks that sometimes some of them sit a little forward, some of them recess. So then that's the recession of space. And then it's a frame. You know, the gold grid is only at the edges. It, there's a big square of open space in the center. So it's just lightly framing white painting. Well, speaking of frames, and I don't mean you know, wooden frames, I mean, frames on the surface of a painting. One of your moves is to use bands of usually a single color, not always, around the outside of a painting to frame action in the middle. There's a painting at the hammer that has a grid in the middle three quarters of the painting and other stuff and a big blue band all the way around the outside. And in other paintings, you've used kind of that pinkish mauve band as a, as a, as a, as a frame. What about those big blocks of color as a framing mechanism are useful or interesting to you? I mean, I really like how it works as a frame, but it's sort of an anti-frame too, because it's very painterly, you know? So what it does is it, it sort of makes a painting and a painting and a painting and a painting. And again, it creates a, a sort of confusion as to a hierarchy of space. I mean, normally you think of the frame as something that's just supposed to I mean, I don't want to use the word frame again, but it's supposed to frame the painting. It's supposed to augment, raise up, triumphize the picture plane. And this idea of triumphizing, which isn't a really, I don't think that's a real word, you know, triumphizing the, in, the inside of the painting is really interesting to me. It just was such a great idea. It came out of some experiments. I had done some small shaped paintings, and then I tried some larger scale shaped paintings and I realized at the large scale, I just wasn't interested in it. So my solution, I was still interested in creating a large shape, but what I did was I just thought, well, I'm not going to make, make it a shaped painting. I'll just put this irregular polygon or whatever shape it was within a rectilinear shape. And when I did that, then of course I had all this space between the shapes that I had drawn and then until the picture plane edge, which is like a big border. And so then that just became this really exciting moment that I could make an area in that border that either participated in the painting or purposefully didn't participate. And then that was just like uh, another thing to play with that I realized was so much better and more interesting to me in my work than making a shape, a, a standalone shape. And, th- and then it just caught it. And then I always think, of this thing that I read about Brancusi, and I've talked about this 
in other places, so maybe this will be repetitive, but I read about Brancusi that he would show, you know, like let's say a brass sculpture on top of a chunk of wood, and then the pedestal would be a piece of marble. And then the next time the marble would be at the top and the piece of wood be in the middle, and then, you know, maybe the brass would be below. So he would switch out what would be the piece on top in in these three-part constructions. And it really just infuriated people because they were reading the sculpture as the sculpture versus the pedestal and then making the pedestal equal and then making it feel as if it's completely interchangeable with what the work itself was. And I think that's such a delightful story and such a simple thing to do to throw something up in the air again. And so I think of like that the kind of fun freedom in the painting too, to be able to break rules about where the painting is in the painting or how to create different structures that are playful and maybe but maybe playful is the wrong word, but almost like visual punning. And then there's all stuff, you know, some of the borders are strict in that blue one we were discussing. I think that's just like a really, the edges of the blue are just straight, but in other cases, sometimes there's a scallop or a zigzag, or maybe there's like a bite or something like a curvy shape, but it's, it's, it's all becomes compositional, just compositional toolkit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the last move or form I'd like to ask about, it's a shape you use that's sort of tetrisy and sort of not. Kind of looks like a side profile of a staircase often, but not always. And so this surfaces in a painting with a red border. We'll have pictures of these on manpodcast.com. They're all untitled with numbers, which is why I'm not bothering. But I think they'll all be identifiable. To... <laughs> I think people who, who go to the website and look at the pictures will immediately get it. But one with a red border in the show at 356 Mission. And there's one of a painting you made earlier this year that has a brown border of the sort we were just talking about. Only the border takes over kind of the upper left third of the painting and that step shape survives as kind of a pale very pale lime green step up what is that shape and why is it good that shape i i in the painting that brown painting i i call that painting the brown staircase it has a number but it so i'm calling it a staircase again it's not really a staircase per se but it's i think it came out of trying to make an edge have some kind of a customization so it's not a straight edge and i've done that with the zigzag i've done it with the scallop and the staircase shape is a little bit more of an analytical zigzag you know it's uh, 90 degrees it's great because it is a diagonal and a diagonal always creates a kind of dynamism and energy but what i like about the staircase shape is that it's there's it's a diagonal made of vertical and horizontal lines so it's sort of a flat-footed kind of energy it it slows you down but still has movement when i think about it more in a different way i as a and this is a very different way and i'm not saying it's about this but i think it's sort of interesting to share this detail as a young girl i was obsessed with dollhouses and had quite a few of them and then drew the interiors of houses, almost like slices, like you would look at a dollhouse. I also drew aerial view of towns and would make up towns and roads and geographies and maps. 
But in all of my dollhouses, the staircase was really important. And in all of my drawings of these houses, staircases were important. And I think, you know, it's it's sort of a, a way to move from one place to another visually, either from the second floor to the first floor or from one kind of space to a different kind of a space. Uh, it's a, a place of transportation that's manual that, that you move through as a person. And so I think it's interesting to me for those reasons. And a good friend of mine who I've known and we knew each other through graduate school and, and and are still very close, Mari Eastman, a painter. I've known her for so long that she remembered an earlier painting of mine that I had, when I moved to LA, I think I threw it away, which was sort of, in hindsight, foolish, but it was really big. And it was a painting that I was trying to make on the structure of the White Castle hamburger fast food chain. They I loved that it was a white grid and that the top of the fast food place is like a little, like each fast food place is a little castle. And I just thought that was such a strange high-low hybrid. And I made this painting in my studio where it was a shaped painting and the top of the whole painting was a literal castle turret. You know, what is that? What's the name of that? There's an actual name of... Turret sounds right to me. Yeah. It's a kind of masonry form, yeah. Yeah, and so the painting was this very minimal painting, but it had a shaped top that was like a castle, you know, a straight, a down, a straight, an up, across, down, up, across. And it was painted white, and then very, very thin, dark blue grid was etched across the entire painting. And when I showed my friend Mari a picture of the brown painting in progress, she immediately said, oh, my God, it reminds me of your white castle painting. And I thought, oh, my God, that is so crazy. You're right. It's, so it's not about that, but what it is is it's, a, it's some kind of shape that I've been interested in for a very, very long time. So it's a lot of different things at once, which is why it makes it powerful for me. It's something I came to now for various reasons, but went to earlier for other reasons. So there's something about it that's resonant. You know, in this brown painting, it transits and fills 80 or 75 percent of the canvas. In the red-bordered one, the stair-shaped form fills maybe 10 percent of the canvas. It, it works as both a very large thing that dominates a painting, and it works as a much smaller thing that, you know, is the third player off the bench within a painting. Why? Yeah, why does it work both big and tiny within different paintings? Because I think it's an accumulation of things built together. You know, a staircase is an open square that connects. And it's an open square that's building. It's it's deconstructed and built so that it's... Yeah, and the red painting, it literally leads you to the next level of the painting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right. So it's, you know, it's like a, almost like at a, a mill, you know, where the water wheel has those ways of moving mm-hmm. the water you know, it's a, it's a piece with smaller parts in it. It's it's a larger thing made up of a smaller shape. Yeah, no, it literally gets you from literally gets the eye from one mm-hmm. part of a painting. It's a literal the staircase. Part. I mean, yeah. it's it's a way to walk up through the steps of the painting, and it's a yeah. slower it's a slower way to move too. It slows you down because you know it's not like a curve. A curve is about moving quickly in a speed and there's no interruption. You just fly over the edge of it. But a staircase slows you down and, and it measures your paces. 
universal human experience, really, going back <laughs> millennia. We know what to do with it. We know how to respond to it. Rebecca Morris, thanks so much for speaking with me. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was nice to speak with you. The Inner Circle Galleries at the Hirshhorn in Washington, D.C., stretch more than 400 linear feet. For her largest work, Lynn Myers has made a monumental site-specific wall drawing that encircles the museum's second level. When Myers works nesting one line beside another, she welcomes and magnifies the imperfections that arise naturally from her process. Tiny ripples become waves that pulse with energy. Get more information at hershorn.si.edu and get caught in the current. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents Frank Stella, A Retrospective, a comprehensive survey of one of the most important living American artists. This exhibition presents Frank Stella's career to date, showcasing his prolific output from the mid-1950s to the present through approximately 100 works, including paintings, reliefs, maquettes, sculptures, and drawings. This retrospective is curated by Michael Opping, chief curator of the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth in association with Adam Weinberg, Alice Pratt Brown Director of the Whitney Museum of American Art. Frank Stella, a retrospective on view in Fort Worth through September 18th. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University presents Southern Accent, Seeking the American South in Contemporary Art, an exhibition that questions and explores the complex and contested space of the American South. This unprecedented exhibition takes on Southern identity as an open-ended question and reframes the way we look at the South in contemporary art. Southern Accent encompasses a broad spectrum of media and approaches from both within and outside the region, demonstrating that Southernness is more of a shared sensibility than a consistent culture. Southern Accent includes work by 60 artists focusing on contemporary work from the past 30 years. It includes earlier work dating back to the 1950s as important foundational and historical markers. Opening September 1st at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Visit nasher.duke.edu. Welcome back. Next up, my 2012 conversation with Roy Dowell, who was, at the time, included in that year's iteration of the Hammer Museum's Made in L.A. Biennial. Dowell is the chairman of the Graduate Fine Arts Department at the Otis College of Art and Design, and his work is in the collections of LACMA, MOCA, the Hammer, and the Berkeley Art Museum. Roy Dowell, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Okay, thank you very much, Tyler. <laughs> I appreciate it. In the Hammer's Made in L.A. 2012 catalog, you're described by Malik Gaines, who wrote the section on you. As a painter who makes works out of collage, which is literally true, and I want to start with a couple of questions about that. Okay. A few years ago, you moved toward uh, not so much collaging with found objects, but to significantly, but not entirely, collaging with objects you make, that you make yourself. Are you still doing that? I am still doing that, and part of the reason for that was, one, I, I felt like I was maybe relying on the found object too much, um, and because I couldn't always seem to find the right thing or what I wanted, so I thought it's probably easier if I make it. The the logical thing that someone might say is, well, why don't you just paint it all you know, on one surface? But I'm so used to constructing an image, um, and that's kind of the way I think about things, is by pulling things together, matching them up, fitting them together. So to just work on one 
one surface with you know with one material doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, and and also I think because my work is about a certain kind of hybridism uh, to construct the image, I think makes much more sense. So do you make stuff for for your pieces, knowing what you're going to do with them, knowing where they're going to go within a composition, or does that come later? No, usually I don't know what I'm going to do with them. Sometimes I'll go into my studio and for a day I'll just make scrap. I'll just, you know, throw paint around, um, make make materials that that I think at some point or another I might be able to use, or I'll draw, or I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll do all sorts of experimentations. And there are times when I will make something specific, but that's fairly rare. Usually it's just I make a lot of stuff and then, then I have it to use. So it makes composition into a physical process. Yes, very much so. Yeah, the, my, my process, the, the thinking process as well as the physical process is very similar. It's just I just start, I start with something, and it really is kind of, although oftentimes I have a very particular idea of what I want the piece to be about or uh, that there might be certain elements that I know that I'm going to use or combinations of things that I'm going to use in my work, I don't, I don't have a plan. So I, I will start with something, and it's kind of inconsequential what it, what it is. Sometimes I will actually sit down and do uh, a rendering of, of something, or I'll copy something that I've liked uh, from somebody else's work or from another source, and then I'll start to react to that and start to build on top of it. So oftentimes what I start with is not visible uh, once the piece is done, but it's just, a, just something for me to get started with, something that, that starts the process. You know, that's that's kind of one of the things that I think is, is the most fun about your work and something that I think kind of keeps people coming back to it and, and, and turns them into long-term fans. And that is you, you obviously have a prodigious art historical vocabulary. So in the works at the Hammer, I see Picasso and Matisse, and I see Kim McConnell and Ellsworth Kelly and Stuart Davis and Joseph Albers, and I could keep going. So I kind of want to ask how you manage so many references at one time, but that's kind of broad. So maybe a, a way of framing it is, you know, when Marc Grosjean makes a Picasso-derived painting, he lasers in on Picasso, and we all see Picasso in it. But you are, you, you, have, you have a broader lens than that, and you seem to juggle. And I wonder how you do that, is, or, or, <laughs> or is it just kind of in the soup? I think it's more in the soup. It's an intuitive, uh, it's it's an intuitive decision-making process. I'm not, I don't focus in on a particular artist or um, on a, well, I do, I do oftentimes, as I said before, I do start sometimes with something very literal. I, I will copy something of someone else's work, but it's usually not somebody who you would recognize. Oftentimes it mm -hmm. might be, um, say, you know, a segment of an Aboriginal drawing or something that I've taken off of some um, Pacific Island piece of cloth or something. So that it, it's not something that has has a um, a known author. And I will start with that and then build off of that. But I have, on many occasions, started with an element from or sometimes a large section of somebody else's work. I'll render that, uh, you know, and and fairly accurately just because I appreciate it. I like what they've done. And as I, I always joke about how I, I've just really worked very hard at becoming a really good thief that I'll just steal whatever I can from anybody <laughs> because it's out there. It's mine. You know, if it's out there, it's in the public realm. It's mine. I can, I can do whatever I want with it. And I know that, you know, this is a whole other part of the, of our discussion, I suppose, but I know that that can be problematic, but I'm, I'm not interested. Well, I don't, I don't ever keep, 
I don't ever stop there. I build on it. And oftentimes it's built on to the point where you would never recognize what, where it came from. Um, so because I have such a, a wide range of interests from you know, modern and contemporary art to craft, to advertising, to ethnographic material, it, it's a balancing act, but I, I think it's just become part of my thinking process. I'm not, I'm not trying to integrate things so much as I just am immigrating, uh, integrating them. Probably a good way of getting into some specifics about this is the billboard, the piece you did that was turned into a billboard mm -hmm. as part of the Hammer Biennial. Mm -hmm. um, it was up until the end of July, and we'll have images, of course, of it on, uh, on Modern Art Notes and on manpodcast.com. Maybe the way to start with the billboard is for you, maybe you could describe for people how it started not as a billboard, as something much smaller. Well, I started that piece, uh, it, it was originally, um, as I don't remember the exact dimensions, but we'll say 8 by 16 inches, so it was, it was a typical size, although it is a, a horizontal, which is not a format that I work with that often. Um, but it started as a, as a very small, very intimate kind of, uh, you know, not kind of, a very small intimate collage. And uh, the the materials are bits of another artist's work, although quite frankly, I don't think I could tell you their name. It was somebody who's, who I had a poster of their work, uh, somebody who had shown at DIA many years ago, and I had a little poster mm -hmm. or the announcement from, from their, their exhibition. And... Then I believe in that piece there's also um, a bit of a, um, a painting from India that I got at a junk store that I chopped up and some scrap that I made myself and probably some advertising, you know, little bits and pieces of other things and in a very typical sort of collage way, you know, just finding little bits and pieces of things that seem to all fit together. It was constructed uh, as I normally construct my work in a very intuitive way. Uh, I... I you know, have a very strong, strong interest in composition and how one moves the viewer through through an image, and so it it there was no no specific no specific plan except that I knew that whatever I did would have to have a strong graphic uh, quality to it because I knew that it would ultimately become a billboard, and I did a couple of pieces mm. that uh, in fact in the catalog for the Hammer exhibition there's another piece that I did. Um, that then I and I gave the the hammer the choice. I said, you know, you pick between these two pieces, which you which one you would prefer to use. Uh, they did the billboard of one, and then they made postcards uh, for the exhibition out of the other. That that that's interesting that you knew that it might be the one that was the billboard because I was going to ask you if you think it's a piece that can be read le read from left to right the way a billboard might traditionally be read left to right. Yeah, I, I think that's sort of uh, almost impossible to work on that that kind of format, that extreme horizontal format, without mm -hmm. reading it from left to right. Uh, but I did know that. Yeah, I was I was aware of that, and I I was aware in in both cases with both of the possibilities um, of the pieces that I did that that would be the case. Uh, but both of them have a very strong graphic uh, graphic sense to them, and both of them could be read quickly as you drove by. But if you happen to be at the at a stop sign and had more time to look at them, there would be an you know a bigger payoff because you'd start to see some of the detail and some of the subtlety that's there. You know, I want that for the individual viewer for a small piece. Always, you know, I want I want the engagement of the viewer in the piece to uh, 
to to occur so that they're really navigating through it they're starting to make associations they're starting to understand the logic of why certain things got put together or how one thing feeds into the next and of course with something as large as this you don't tend to read it quite in the same way but i i was happy to see that it did happen that here's something that started off in such an intimate way and became so public and yet still operated with intimacy Hmm. I, I mean, when I look at it, I see, well, maybe I should ask first, do you um, like it when people parse your compositions and f- try to figure out where parts of them came from or when they recall well, things for the viewer? I'm, I'm not so interested in them um, picking it apart and saying, oh, gee, that must have come from this ad or, you know, where did you get that or where did you, you know, where, where did you find this? I'm more interested in the totality, what what I've made out of it as opposed to what its parts are. But I am interested in people interpreting it. Uh, it's in that sense, I am an old-fashioned modernist. You know, I'm I'm a real dinosaur. That I I really am making my work for a viewer, for a viewer to participate with, for for the viewer to interpret, uh, to locate themselves in the work, to uh, to bring their baggage, their personal baggage, their personal interpretation uh, to the work, and that's what it's there for. And in this piece, there are all of these verticals and horizontals to play off of each other that seem to mm-hmm. really invite to, to to really invite that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're using a, a multiplicity of references in your work is, is always, not yeah. new. No, um, I've, always, it, I've always done that. And I pulled it sort of random, sort of random, a piece from about 20 years ago. Um, mm-hmm. You you do this, um, and it's it's untitled number 535 from 1991. Yeah, and and you know I, I don't typically give my work. I just give them an identification number, like in this case 535. One of my favorite things to do with people when they say, "Oh, you know, number 535," is okay. You're gonna have to describe it, because I really <laughs> love what happens when people start to describe <laughs> my work, because oftentimes they're pretty complex images with a lot of information in them, and what people pick out as being the subject or what people pick out as being the thing that might identify it, oftentimes I like they'll explain it to me. I think I haven't got a clue as to what you're talking about because it's not, you know, what I what I was giving the, the attention to. So in that respect, that's sort of proof of how people put themselves into the work. But uh, describe number 535 to me and, <laughs> and tell me what it looks like. <laughs> well, it's a piece that I've had on my computer for probably four or five years. So I guess maybe not totally at random. And I started calling it. I started having it on my screen more often a couple of years ago when MoMA did the Picasso guitars show, mm-hmm. because I thought I was finding a guitar in it, and or I thought it had something to do with Picasso's guitars, and I would open it up and then I wouldn't be able to find it, and then I'd put it away for a week and then I'd open it back up again, um, and it's a piece that in the lower right hand corner has kind of a Picasso. I'm sorry, a Pollock drip reference in orange, um, a reference that's echoed in the, in the top center. It's got some areas that recall uh, Roy Lichtenstein's brush paintings, uh, Sigmar Polka's post-digital dots. Uh, it's got some uh, what, what look like some drawn passages, uh, quickly uh, pencil-drawn passages that, that don't really recall called Twombly, but you know could if you didn't know Twombly that well. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's 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 a piece where if you describe it that way or take anything out, nothing makes any sense. But when you look at, at at the whole, there's this incredibly coherent composition. And I guess the reason I wanted to bring it up was not because of the references, um, but because it's a really good example of an incredibly tight 
composition. I, I, I guess my question is related to what I was asking earlier about how physical making a composition is. Does making a composition out of collaged elements force you to think about composition in a way that making a composition with a brush does not? Uh, yes, I, actually, I think it does because you're constructing the image. Um, you know, going back to that idea of how I've I've always constructed images, even even when I was working, you know, on one surface in in a more traditional way of painting, I still found myself constructing the image. And in fact, that's why I shifted to collage because at one point I was trying to make all of these different parts of the painting look different, and I mm -hmm. I didn't necessarily have the technical ability to do it enough that I was happy with. So I thought, well, you know, the obvious thing to do would just be to use different materials instead of trying to paint them to look like they're different materials. So I just shifted shifted my uh, my attention towards starting to find and, and um, collect uh, different kinds of materials. And, and at that point, billboards were printed on paper, fairly good paper. Um, since they were made to go outside and made to last for a while, and the printing was not bad. And something that I liked about the printing was that because these images were made to be looked at from far away, when you got up close to them, they just fell apart. They became dots and, and just blobs of color. And so there was a built-in sense of abstraction in the work, um, which you know I'm, I'm very interested in the dialects and languages of abstraction. So, um, you know, that it was already there in a way kind of was exciting to me that I didn't have to make them abstract. They were abstract already. And oftentimes there will be elements that are recognizable and I very rarely use things for for what they are. Um, you know, if there's a picture of a palm tree, I might use that, but I'm not using it because it's a palm tree. I'm using it because of some of the formal qualities that it has. And the the composition and the formal formal elements of the work are very important to me. I, I, you know, without sounding immodest, I think I have a very good sense of composition, and I worked at it for a long time. And it is that composition that is part of the way one navigates the viewer through the work, and uh, it sort of manipulates the viewer in a way too. You know, to get them to look at this, or to get them to do this, to get them to not leave the page, to not leave the painting, uh, to just keep bringing them back in in different ways. And there's almost always in my work a disruption of the logic so that you think you've gotten the logic, you think you've started to figure out what's going on here, and then there's something that says, <laughs> nope, you got it wrong, and you've got to start all over again. So it's, you know, it's an attempt to try and keep people in there a little bit longer. No doubt that's why I, I mean, it worked. I kept thinking there was a Picasso guitar yeah. in there. No, and I will, I will say that I don't know that I've ever literally taken from Picasso or... I know for sure that I've never used used an image of a guitar in my work. However, there are some paintings of Picasso's that are probably from that guitar series uh, that I have been very influenced by and that I like very much. Um, you know, it's interesting when I when I think about. Somebody asked me the other day what, what my what my favorite painting was, and some of my very favorite work is figurative work. There's a painting uh, by Alice Neal of I think the artist or I think the the sitter was Joe Gould. And it's a, a portrait of a, of a naked man with multiple genitals. And it's a painting that I'm just, I just love. It's so exciting. When the first time I saw it, I was so excited by the painting. Also one of uh, Van Gogh, or um, Gauguin's self-portraits with the snakes, uh, which is just sort of this disembodied head and then these sort of abstract forms around it. 
another one of my favorite paintings, or Picasso's painting of Gertrude Stein, another one of my favorite paintings. And and top one of my very top favorites is uh, Demoiselle d'Avignon by, by Picasso. Mm. Switching gears to sculpture, there there um, are several of your sculptures in in, um, in Made in L.A. and they are completely different from <laughs> uh, collaged paintings. They seem to rely, correct me if I'm wrong, much more on on brush, line, and color. Well, I think they're different in their immediate in their initial appearance. They're not different in the thinking that goes behind them because they are also constructed. I mean, they're obviously they're sculptures, so they're constructed, but they pull together. They're, they're hybrids. They pull together many different sources again. So they might look like one source, you know, like they come from one source, but all of them come from multiple sources. Some very literally coming from multiple sources. Some more, more less literal. Um, but the thinking process behind them is pretty similar. You're right. The visual, you know, the, how they look visually is is fairly different. But flatter, broader yeah. expanses of color. Yeah. Yeah. Um, lines that tread transverse almost the entire work. Yeah. And one thing uh, somebody noted said, oh, these these sculptures remind me of your very early work. And I went back and looked at some very early paintings from the 70s, probably, or yeah, from the late 70s. And they do. They have, you know, my work started out with a much simpler kind of composition, a much simpler, more direct application of paint. And these do have that quality, and and in a way, it might just be literally that uh, I'm starting something new. So I kind of went back to where I started before. That these these sculptures, and I've only made a few of them. The, the pieces and the hammer show uh, are not the only ones that I have made, but uh, I haven't made a lot of sculpture. And I the other sculptures that I've made prior to this kind of I was trying a little of this and a little of that. I didn't want to make um, assemblage in the way that one normally associates assemblage of collected materials uh, in the same way that the collages are made. I didn't want that kind of literal connection. But what's behind them, the influences of the diff of different cultures, the influences of you know both contemporary and and historic time periods, is in the work. Uh, it's just not as literal or maybe as evident as it is in the flat work. They also seem to exist just beyond the point of utility, kind of, um, mm -hmm. you know, not, 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 uh, this is a comparison I'm going to hate myself for in the morning, but, you know, not, <laughs> not like a Franz Vest adaptive, but um, because, you know, when you pick up a Vest adaptive, you, you know, kind of what you're going to do with it. You're going to swing it. You're going to hit somebody with it. You're going to yeah. put it over uh -huh. your head, you know, whatever. But yours look like, um, they should have utility, and then you can't figure out what, what, what that is. Well, some of them are taken from utilitarian objects, and I, I'm glad that you brought Franz Vest as a reference because he's one of my absolute favorite artists. Um, and, yeah, some some of the work um, is, is influenced by or is based on utilitarian objects. Some of the mm -hmm. works are, um, or are referencing those things, but not in a way that you would ever recognize them. And, and even the objects that I'm referencing are so sort of minor or um, esoteric that you, even if even if I told you what they were, it wouldn't help because you wouldn't necessarily know what they are. I mean, they're not they're not common objects, but they are objects. And in the end, then in some other cases, they are more common objects. But also, some of them are based on um, on on ethnographic um, objects. 
you know, from different cultures, primar primarily African cultures, but not just. Some some of them come from Pacific Coast or I'm sorry, Pacific Island cultures, or more from Latin American culture cultures. Well, they're very similar to the collages in the sense that the sense of knowability is fleeting and slippery. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, that's, one, that's one thinks one might. Well, I, I like the idea that people think they recognize them. And yet they can't quite name it. They can't really say what it is that they're recognizing or what it might be used for. Uh, and again, it's you know it's their hybrid nature. They are they're objects that are made up of, uh, you know, I, the, the the basic form might be a, a duplication or an exaggeration of um, of an existing object. But then what gets painted on top of it or how the surface gets treated is from a whole other culture or a whole other set of influences. So, you know, it's just finding this marriage or this hybridization between two cultures or or multiple cultures, multiple references that come together. And, and you know, my, my task in all of this is how to make it all make sense and how to make it seem like it's supposed to go together. Mm, fantastic. Well, Roy Dowell, thanks so much uh, for talking with me. Thank you, Tyler. I really appreciate it. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.